All right, everybody, welcome again to our Flexible Dieting Institute research review. I'm going to continue our series. This We're maybe coming to an end just discussing quality matters when it comes to food. This one is, is a slight tangent from just quality, but at the same time, uh, I think you'll see where that kind of dovetails in. Uh, I, I found this one let me get over here for you uh, in the in Journal of Molecular Metabolism, that the title of the study is Diet Induced Changes in the Lean Brain, because they did this with very lean, healthy subjects for a reason. Hypercaloric, high-fat, high-sugar snacking decreases serotonin transporters in the human hypothalamic region. And I mean, that title alone, there, there's just a lot going on. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of pick that apart as we go. But two of the things I want you to focus on right now. This is a study looking at the difference between stacking sugar into a hypercaloric diet. So if somebody is in the process process of overeating, they're overconsuming foods or they are gaining weight. Is there a difference between eating sugar versus fat? Is there a difference between eating sugar or fat with meals or as snacks? So you'll see in the setup of the study, the methodology, how they had four subject or four different yeah, subject groups and then a control group. Um, and specifically, there has never been a study showing the direct correlation to a reduction of serotonin because of serotonin's implication with satiety and hunger modulation. So all that to say that there are ways of gaining weight, as you will see, that can decrease serotonin to the point where you just have increasing hunger. And that is something we often see with people who start eating more food. And and I, I mean, in, in all kinds of demographics of clients, it never surprises me to hear somebody say, wow, as soon as I started eating more food, my hunger went up. When I was eating less food, my hunger went down. So I think you're going to see some of the mechanisms here of why that is, but some really, really, really solid habit takeaways as far as how you might want to organize your food intake. So in, um, I'll just move you guys to the side here so I can see my titles. Uh, just as a premise, this is one of their opening statements in the introduction. It is evident that there's a relationship between the brain serotonin system and obesity. Although it is clear that drugs affecting the serotonin system regulate appetite and food intake, it is unclear whether changes in their serotonin system are cause or consequence of obesity. And this was a huge, huge part of this. And I'm going to, I have a little sidebar talking about serotonin uptake, reuptake inhibitors in a little bit, because we know when you do things like antidepressants, the, the risk of obesity just skyrockets. And there is some interesting interplay because not only do the neurons in our brain release serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter largely associated with happiness and contentment, but our uh, enteric neurons, we have more neurons, the, the cells in our brains that control our central nervous system, we have more central nervous system neurons in our gut, in our enteric, what's called our enteric brain, than even in our skull. And those can release serotonin and so forth. So really, really complex, incredible study. Just never never seen anything even remotely like this, which is why it intrigued me. And what they are saying here is 
we know serotonin, hunger go hand in hand, serotonin, obesity go hand in hand, but is it cause or effect? And this is something that they wanted to really look at. So these are some slides I just kind of picked out. Uh, I apologize. Some of them aren't super, super high quality. I'm at the uh, mercy of Google images, but just to show you a little bit of the serotonin function. Um, so in the brain, as I said, it helps control mood, fear, anxiety, all those kind of things, clarity of thought, mostly, as I said, just happiness, just that, that sense of contentment, but in the gut and not only in the gut and that enteric brain, but in the neurons in our head, uh, it's also very much, uh, related to satiety, as I said, cravings, digestion, you know, even peristalsis, how we move food through the GI system. And in previous research reviews, you may remember me continually talking, continue, continuously talking about the hypothalamus and its role in hunger cues. You're going to see that come up in a big way in this study. Um, this is a picture of just a neuron, a, a, in a, a synapse. So you see that junction where you get that neuron to fire with an action potential, and then we get a response. So if you look over here to the left, serotonin reuptake transporter, and then serotonin receptors, there, there is a phenomena which when we have serotonin being transmitted across these junctions, and it's doing its thing, it is signaling the body to be sated, because when we have more serotonin being released, we feel happier, we feel more content, and that translates to satiety. It, it directly impacts hunger. When we don't have as much, when that is decreasing, then we're going to feel less happy uh, and you're going to be more sensitive to hunger cues. Um, the sidebar, I'm gonna, I want to mention it now just while you see this visual here. The sidebar is that when we take those serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, SSRIs, then what happens is we end up having more external and less internal serotonin. So you will see that that is why that creates hunger, why people who take things like Zoloft and so forth, uh, Prozac, end up typically with more hunger. Um, anyway, like I said, that's a sidebar, has nothing to do with the study, but they they mentioned it as a, as a, as a tangent, and I, and I thought it was a, a very important thing to talk about just, just in passing. So the way serotonin helps regulate this whole system is, is not... Uh, that different from insulin, leptin, ghrelin, all those kinds of things. As I mentioned, when we have an increasing amount of, of glucose in our bloodstream, we, we release, um, you know, insulin, obviously that helps to trigger the hypothalamus to give us signals of satiety, which also then are, you know, related to serotonin, you know, serotonin is actually, elevating when we have things like like insulin as a mechanism. So you know, for example, the term hangry. Uh, you also know when you finally get some food in your stomach and you calm back down and you're happier, you're sated, you know, that's all related to this whole mesolimbic system. Uh, which I kind of showed here. So all of those things kind of going up in unison, they're all related and Corta or not cortisol, um, serotonin is, is a mediator of all of this. So indeed, serotonin acts as an anorexogenic signal. Food intake increases both extracellular serotonin levels and serotonin turnover in the brain while serotonin inhibits food intake. 
and promote satiety. In addition, neurochemical depletion of brain serotonin, as well as genetic and pharmacological manipulations of several parts of the serotonin system in rodents, result in obesity and hyperphagia. And, and that's an important thing to consider because even when when people are talking about taking um, uh, SSRIs or other mechanisms, sometimes birth control, where they say, wow, I gained 30 pounds when I started that medication, your body can't make body fat out of thin air. It's usually going to induce that from hyperphagia. It's going to make you hungrier. And that's what this does. It, in this particular study, looking at these four control groups, only one decreases serotonin and it's not subtle. And so that in turn doesn't do anything to you metabolically. It just makes you hungrier. So you are going to eat more. So one of the things you're going to see in the study setup is that they wanted an ad libitum component because they wanted people to be able to respond to their hunger. So uh, thus lower CERT, which is serotonin, um, transport uh, tr uh, transporters is clearly associated with obesity. However, whether this is cause or consequence and whether this ex is explained by BMI per se or excessive food intake remains to be determined, which is what they set out to do here. So let me get into the methodology. Um, I, I say it a little bit better here. I, I kind of pulled all that out. So let me jump over here. So they picked out, uh, that's supposed to be 39. Sorry about that. My uh, typo there. So 39 healthy lean men, the average age 22 and a half, the average BMI 22 and a half. So pretty lean. They were randomized, as I said, into four hypercaloric diets, plus the control group, which was just, they were just there, you know, eat whatever you want. You're going to be the control. Uh, the way they set it up mechanistically was a 40% calorie surplus. And so just as an example, if you were eating 2,000 calories a day, if that was your maintenance level, then you would eat 2,800 calories on this diet, or at least that was the goal. So they did a really good job. I'm not going into all of the details of the study setup because it's just, it's just, it, this was a really complex study. But just to let you know, they, they, did metabolic cart testing work and they and they did diet journal analysis and they looked at exactly what their basal metabolic needs were. And they said, okay, now that we know that, here's how with the group, we're going to increase calories, but we want it to be ad libitum eating. You are in control of your meals, but with the meals that you like to eat and you feel sated, we're then going to have you eat another 40% calories. So there's a looseness to that on purpose, that ad libitum portion, because they wanted to be able to, they wanted the subjects to be able to respond to their hunger. So this is how they did it. The, uh, so it, in these four hypercaloric diets, diets, they had, so HSHF stands for high sugar, high fat. HS is just high sugar. So, they, they gave a supplement, 240 calories, kind of like a shake. Um, what am I thinking of? One of those like Ensure, something like that. That would be about 16% protein, 49% carbs, 35 fats. And then the group that had high sugar, it was their drink of choice. It just had to be no fat or protein. Uh, same 240 calories, but just a sugary drink, juice, soda, something like that. This is a six-week diet. It was done with... Uh, spec imaging, so radioactive 
ions, potassium, looking at exactly chemically what's happening in the brain. So pretty, pretty solid way of studying this. And over here, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the different groups. The high fat, high sugar via that additional liquid supplement, they, they did this in two groups of two. So the high fat, high sugar, they did it three times a day with their three main meals. And that's what they ate. They were just instructed to eat three meals a day. Or they did that. They gave those extra calories as in-between meal snacks. So one group was eating three meals a day. One group was eating six meals a day. Three meals plus these three snacks. All with that 40% increase in calories. Then you had the high sugar alone, not high sugar and fat. And they did the same thing. Three meals a day plus that extra 240 calories in just pure sugar form or having the high sugar in between meals. So, okay. So we're going to skip right to some results. So this is weight gain. And one of the things that it's important to note is look how small this is to the side. This is only six weeks. So the amount of weight gained in kilograms you're looking at the the high sugar frequency group. I forgot to say that. These S's and F's. So high fat, high sugar um, in the uh, same meal. And then the and then the high fat, high sugar with more frequent meals is the F. So first of all, the control group, pretty cool. They just kind of stayed very, very stable. Lost actually about a pound. And these group, all, all three, all four of these groups, they said was statistically the same because you're looking at about two kilograms to three. So in six weeks, there was no more than a two pound difference. It, most places here, about a half a pound, maybe three quarters of a pound. So they said, we accomplished our goal in the fact that we wanted an isocaloric study because we're most interested in the changes in brain serotonin levels. We're not interested in who loses the most body fat, and they shouldn't have really seen much of a change. Uh, if you were to check these people out in actual body weight, so extend the scale from 0, 1, 2, 3, 4 kilograms of weight lost to their actual body size, like 80, 90 kilograms, you would see these things shrink to where there's just no difference. They would look like four four bar graphs that are just the same when you take them to that scale. So I just wanted to point that out in terms of how they, they set this up in terms of visual scale. Now, if you are really, 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 really interested in trying to extrapolate out any minute differences, even though this is statistically insignificant, you might say, well, you know, the, the high sugar, more frequent meals they actually gain the least. So lower fat, more frequent meals with more sugar because the group that had the high fat, high sugar, you remember that had about 19% protein. So it's more like a meal replacement supplement. This high sugar group did not even get that protein bump. So it was even more statistically more sugar than just the sugar and fat. So a little prelude to saying, well, maybe fat's kind of the culprit here and, and not sugar. So let's look at the next graph, the 
the, the calories actually consumed. So they, they were supposed to eat, again, just ad libitum. The way they set up this study design in the first place was to just to see what their average calorie intake was, what their normal functional metabolic rate, rate may be. And they said, but you guys eat whatever you want to eat. Just eat to hunger. And we're going to give you this extra food supplement in the form of a sugary drink or fat and sugar. And we'll see what happens. So again, the all the groups, again, all lean, healthy. When, when I showed you that the group subject groups were an average of, I think, 22 and a half years old, there's only a one and a half standard deviation uh, of years. So they were all all under 25 years old, between 21 and maybe 24 years old, um, all within a, a point or so in the BMI. So once again, as they randomized these people into four different groups, they really nailed having a pretty even subject group. I mean, they, they wanted, even though there are five to eight people in each one of these, these groups, they didn't want outliers to really skew it. And so they just really didn't. So then with the, you know, when you add in the extra supplemental calories here, that's what it looked like. So again, when you look at this, it, it, it even though there are some little deviations, it's pretty, pretty similar. That that should not cause you to, to scrutinize anything out of sorts. Um, so this just shows the, the difference in percentage of carbohydrates and fats because of what they were allocated. So you know, again, nothing, nothing necessarily to show here, except that people followed their directions and so forth. Okay. So here's, here's the ball game. Uh, serotonin binding activity in the high fat, high sugar frequency group was 30% reduced. The other three hypercaloric diet groups and in the control group, there was no significant change in serotonin binding over the six weeks. So before I get to some of the discussion points and then open it to you guys for some questions and comments, you have these five groups. One is the control. They didn't have a calorie increase. Therefore, there was not any weight gain. The other four, high sugar and high fat combined, 240 calories per meal, three times a day, so around seven, actually, that would be close, 750, 800 calories extra uh, in, in mostly sugar and fat in either just three meals a day, and that's all, or in between meals. So they had their normal meals plus those three supplements. So, so three meals a day with the high fat sugar supplement added to that meal or separate, and then the high sugar only, not an increase in fat just 240 extra calories of pure sugar added to their meals or not added to their meals, added in between meals. So out of all five of those groups, only one produced a 30% drop in serotonin, which would be very significant in how you perceive hunger, happiness, mood, things like that. And it was the group that was high fat, high sugar in between meals. So the increase of calories with meals added weight gain. Those people gained body fat, but it did not decrease serotonin. Like I said, there's a lot of moving parts to this. And so I want to make sure everybody 
has a chance to to discuss and and think about what exactly you know we can we can derive from this. But let me go through a couple slides where I break down a couple of their decisions or discussion points and mine. So these were again lean, healthy male subjects. That's pretty specific. Uh, you you can't necessarily say that is indicative then of everybody of every demographic. Lean. These were lean people. We don't know if somebody had a forty BMI if they would respond the same. But what they wanted to see, what they wanted to research, and go back to the first couple slides. This has always been a question: which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the fact that somebody's obese that we see these changes in serotonin, or is there a specific mechanism that causes serotonin to be decreased? So, so this was very specific for those two reasons. Uh, as I said, the only decrease in serotonin was when there was high fat, high sugar, not high sugar alone, and only when it, the surplus was between meals, so adding to snacking. So if, if we just stopped right here and didn't discuss any more, I would walk away saying, okay, bad idea to snack with added fat. If I need a snack between meals, maybe I need to consider my main, as we've kind of called them in our system, anchor meals and core meals, the meals where you have some protein, have some fibrous carbohydrate, probably some starchy carbohydrate, uh, an amount of fat that would be appropriate for those food source combinations. If those are our actual meals and I need a snack between meals, this would indicate if I'm going into a calorie surplus, I'm I'm better off to make sure those are high sugar snacks and not fat, or I'm going to have a 30% reduction in, in serotonin. This did not look at weight maintenance. So I can't necessarily say that, wow, I should never have fat in my diet, in my snacks, if I'm on a calorie deficit and losing weight. But it, it does show something that that can and should be investigated further later. And, and I'm not sure how far they would get into even implying that that would cross over. But previous research correlations between serotonin and obesity, there was always that negative correlation, which I, I stated, and yet they were indeterminate which one was causal, if at all. So this study shows it's not the obesity causing serotonin changes, but it's the hypercaloric, high fat, high sugar snacking. So a highly palatable food. You can eat sugar. You can eat, again, I, I mean, I don't want anybody to be in a hypercaloric uh, situation. First of all, we don't want you to be gaining body fats if, if, that's, not, if that's not necessary for your health. If you, if you need to lose body fat or maintain, then obviously that's where this comes into play. The high fat, high sugar groups consumed more, I told you that. Um, so, uh, do, 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 do. So this is just one piece of the puzzle, longer meal cycles to utilize acute energy. So again, I'm coming back to the juxtaposition. What if what if people were actually in a calorie deficit? Um, was the fact that this particular study showed you could add the extra calories to your meals instead of between meals, and even though you still gained body fat, just those longer meal cycles, the time between meals being longer, 
the mechanism of glucose disposal, of, of using energy, of bringing blood products down to a more homeostatic normal level, that has to be tied to why serotonin levels remained unchanged. The fact that you just keep spiking and spiking and spiking uh, insulin, which would then essentially probably desensitize serotonin, you know, is, is probably where that comes from, you know, this result from the study. And then, as I mentioned with that sidebar um, about SSRIs, we don't want to spend too much time talking about that. So anyway, as I said, this, this was a really, really specific study. Uh, and I thought it, it gives us uh, another, another spoke in the wheel when we discuss food quality. And as we try to organize uh, how we create meals and so forth, I, I think there's something definitely to take away. So let me uh, stop my screen share here and open this up to some questions. Uh, we have our birthday boy, Kevin Brunacini, Dr. Brunacini. We have Dr. Jen Souders, our medical director, everybody else. So uh, let, let me bring in Kevin first. And Kevin, your only um, restriction is you cannot say this is not surprising. You can't use that phrase, but give me your, your first reaction otherwise. Good thing I switched to sweet tarts for my pre-workout. It's bad go. news for Reese's. I wonder if the mechanism is tied to just, you know, just typical physiology in the sense of if, if it's combined with fat and sugar, if the, if the fat is not going to be utilized, it's just shuttled to just be disposed of or to be stored. Whereas, you know, that's the, if you want to call it the relay station, whereas sugar, there's more interplay with between circulating blood glucose and glycogen. Therefore it's more innocuous to, to be kind of hidden. Whereas fat it's, it's stored and then that just builds if if that's consistent. But I wonder if that's the mechanism, physiologically speaking, to give that kind of a disadvantage versus just sugar based foods. If we if we saw a, a big difference in body fat gain, if that's what this was about, that's probably where my head would go. Uh, I don't know enough about the neuromechanisms of serotonin to say that what you just described about fat versus sugar. Uh, how that would change serotonin. Um, you know, that's where my mind first went to the fact that with, with longer spans between meals, you just have a chance for serotonin to become, uh, or, or less chance for it to become desensitized. And so your body, just like an SSRI, you know, that, that serotonin is there, but you, you have more of it external to the neurons. And so even though it's doing its job, it's actually making you hungrier. And that's why those people gain weight. And so I think the fact that we have a chance to clear that out and we're not just constantly spiking serotonin is why we become, you know, because the body basically is saying, well, we don't need as much. That's why I'm going to start slashing production. So in that group, it was reduced by 30%. That's pretty cool. When you think, you know, just the whole process of that, it's just, it. it's a whole, it's a, process that's just you wouldn't think of otherwise is we're just by default going to the physiology which i'm sure is still just the largest integrator of how things are moving but that's not to say that this has uh, that the serotonin connection doesn't have any weight to pull um i'll just stop there i'm just i'm just just taking it all in because it's just really fascinating to learn about how about you jen 
yeah i'm i'm with kevin it's a it's a bit of a really interesting and maybe a bit of a head scratcher in some regards um one of the things that i thought was interesting was everybody maintained their eating to hunger you know their maintenance level despite having all of these extra calories i thought that was actually very interesting because you know i would i would have expected no matter what the method of, of inducing extra caloric intake would be that I, I was surprised that the maintenance calories did not drop in the groups that um d, you know didn't have a, a decrease in in serotonin i mean i think in the group that has the high fat high sugar um and the lower serotonin yeah i, I think we could you know, we could make some conclusions about the role of serotonin there, or at least some tenuous ones. But it really does surprise me that others, um, you know, did not eat less. And I wonder how much of it is because when you combine sucrose, which sucrose is metabolized in the liver in, into glucose and fructose, and glucose is dispose of as glucose and the body takes care of that really well. But, but fructose is actually metabolized in the liver more like a fat, as we know. So when it's combined with a high fat meal, then um, you would, you know, you would expect potentially a, a bit more liver overwhelm in terms of uh, the metabolic disposal of that. But it's really interesting um, because I, it seems to me just off the top of my head that when you're consuming it, you know, in between meals, maybe the liver is not getting so overwhelmed, um, and you're you're giving you're giving a dose that is able to be handled metabolically, uh, and that results in a different hormonal response and hormonal profile in the body. It's curious. It's really cool. Yeah, uh, this this was completely statistically insignificant, but just when you do look at the amount of food that was consumed ad libitum which uh, if anybody doesn't know, it just means like you're, you're eating whatever you want. You're not in a restricted manner. You're eating to just hunger levels. The high sugar, high fat group with higher frequency, the six meals a day, they actually did eat a little bit more, just, just slightly, like maybe a hundred calories a day. So maybe with a six week study, you know, the momentum was building there, but also what's interesting to me, I think this goes to the study groups, the fact that they picked 39 young men who were already very, very lean. I mean, these are lean guys. These guys all at, at, at yeah. EMI of 22, they've got abs. And so their appetites, you know, just by their phenotype, they just may not be people who eat a lot of food or metabolically they use it. Um, so I don't know if they weren't kind of pre-selected inadvertently to just not overeat anyway. So now that they're getting this extra food, they're like, okay, wow, I'm done checking out. And those, I, I will say one more thing to just the assumptions we can make about normal human behavior. I think average people who aren't dieting and you go do a survey of a hundred really, really lean people who aren't necessarily trying to be lean. This is just who they are. Like my wife. And then you see people who are struggling with their weight. My wife only eats two or three times a day. She's okay not eating for eight hours a day. She's just not hungry. And so the groups here, when you added the food to their meals, sure, they got fuller, 
but they were probably just kind of used to that anyway. And then you start throwing these extra snacks into their bodies. And that's when those groups, you know, had, had the bigger change. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly in that phenotype, as you know, Joe, I'm, I mean, my normal walking around body style looks, you know, pretty close to pre-contest 12 (laughs) months out of a year. Uh, And I'm like, Tracy, you know, I just, I, I just don't, like, I don't care. I don't need, I don't notice not having food. If I'm busy, I'm busy. And it's just, uh, yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't, I don't have that hunger. That that was one of the other thoughts I had about this would have been very interesting um, to see what, if they did, then I know these are really unreliable self-reported hunger scales and stuff, but it would have been interesting um, to see before and after self-reported hunger scales because if you had that group that had the drop in serotonin having a higher hunger scale um, as compared to the other groups, that would that would also be really, I think, interesting and helpful in interpretation. Exactly. Yeah, there certainly was a lot left on the table. And as detailed as the study was, I mean, they're doing, you know, photon imaging of this. So. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's incredibly difficult just to get people to do blood draws multiple times. You know, then you think of something like biopsies and now you've got to spend the money to do all this radiological imaging with radioactive dye. I mean, like, wow. So I, I, I do agree. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they just hit their threshold with how many things they could look at in one study. But this was in, I think, 2013. I would be interested to see if there was more on this specifically with hunger. So maybe that's what we need to do next with our research reviews. Yeah, it's subjective, but on the other hand it's also meaningful. Mm. Because uh if if those hormones drive perceived hunger then then that's that's important if you're studying what the changes in the hormones are. Mm. And on that note, let me give a nod to some of the other research that we've gone over. If you guys remember, I love to quote this study where they trained people with glucometers to understand what their own blood sugars were. And the training was this, you eat food and that food gets digested. When the final remnants of that food leaves your stomach, phase three contractions of your stomach are violent. I mean, they are pushing that food exquisitely hard into the small intestine. And then you get this uh, barometric response of hunger, which is like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm hungry. You get a hunger pang that almost punches you in the gut. And yet all of that food is just entering your small intestine, blood sugars on the rise, blood amino acids, lipids are on there. You shouldn't be hungry. You're not hungry. We call that hunger when it's really, what is the empty hollow sensation as, as titled in, in literature, so to train these people to say, wait, 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 that's not hunger. Don't don't think of that as hunger. We, the researchers, are telling you that's no longer hunger. You can't call it hunger. We're going to train you with glucometers to know when your blood sugar is here, 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 here. And you see that little weak feeling you're getting? You're feeling kind of lethargic. Maybe your legs feel a little heavy. Now you're hungry. That's hunger because now your blood sugar is low enough. Now, instead of two to three hours later when you get that hunger pang, now we're four, five, six hours when your body needs the food. So in seven weeks, they trained adults and children. And if you remember, the children were even better at it than the adults to learn interoceptively. Oh, now I know when I need to eat. 
I'm not supposed to eat when I'm, quote, hungry, just because I feel that sensation. This is what low blood sugar hunger really feels like. I need to wait to eat when I'm hungry. Those people who learn to do that versus the control group who didn't get that training, the control group didn't lose any weight. The other group, without a diet, without counseling, without macros, they 34% of them lost weight just by learning what real hunger was. So I, I do think, Jen, with a 30% reduction in serotonin, depending on how that affects people differently, you know, I, I just wonder you know, how hungry we really feel. Uh, you know, it's, it is subjective to interpret, but I think person to person, we know those changes. I, I've talked to clients for 30 years and they report less hunger. They report more hunger. Like they know in their bodies what they're feeling. And so how much of this is chemically driven through something like serotonin, you know, mm -hmm. is to your point, something that'd be very, very interesting to find out. By the way, happy birthday, Kevin. Thank you. I've enjoyed a nice lunch with uh, with Andra, and that's the day. In-laws invade tomorrow, so. He's finally that's... old enough to drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still drunk 16 years ago since then. Well, any, any other thoughts or comments uh, from other people here? Everybody's just kind of listening in, which is totally fine. Good, good, good. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad you guys all showed up here. As I mentioned for the last couple of weeks, we did change the time. So we're going to stay with this time from now on. So if you're here, you understand what time we're doing this. Mondays and Fridays. Mondays are for our clients and coaches. Fridays, research review, open to the public. As we get closer to the end of the month, there's a week or two I'll have to stop because of an event we're doing, a coaching event here. Um, but any, any final thoughts or questions? This one was so specific. I, I thought we could kind of wrap it up pretty tightly, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still stuck between since this is for hyper caloric reasons. Um, if I need to say, you know, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to just keep most of my fat in my meals. And if I need a snack, I'm going to try not to eat fat. Uh, I don't know if we can really say that or not, but I think we can say that, to perhaps not gain if you're kind of eating for maintenance, maybe it is best to not snack as much to get a couple larger meals in, and um, you know maybe maybe not have as much fat you know in in all of those meals. I, I think that's at least something that'd be responsible. Go ahead, Don. Hey, thanks, Joe. Fantastic presentation. Really, really great information. Uh, just a couple of thoughts on uh, the serotonergic system, um, and just. Uh, the study itself. So um, one possibility, I, I, don't, I don't know if they went into it, but with the, the SPECT studies, um, the possibility exists that what occurred was a, a decreased reuptake of serotonin. So they saw an increase of, uh, of serotonin. Um, and that may, what may be occurring, as an interesting note, is in the glucose in between that you're getting a spiking of the uh, hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis. Um, so you're getting kind of a fight or flight, which serotonin actually um, uh, engages, you know, to in suppression. Um, and so and from a hormonal component too, acting in the gut. So um, it's just, it may 
be that with these smaller meals, um, uh, particularly with people who, a lot of people <laughs> under stress, um, have having a sensitivity to activation through uh, glucose. Um, uh, and the fat impact, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but just as a, as a possibility, I think you're, I think, uh, you know, the conclusions you're drawing are probably accurate, but it would be great to have, uh, great, uh, groups with, uh, with people who are obese or women and, and see what the, uh, the changing profile is. That, that, that's one of the things I wanted to as well, Don, to see in those different demographics. And I meant to have my other laptop here where I could look at the study in, in real time, uh, because the way they did measure this, that they talked about, uh, first of all, I don't think it had an issue with uptake. Uh, they specifically were looking at, at one part of the hypothalamus. Uh, and again, because my neuroanatomy, neurophysiology stops short of going this far. Um, but I can send you this study because I, th I think right. the way the researchers set it up was to avoid something like that. Like, like just looking at a mock SSRI scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'd be interesting. But I, I have to, I have to shoot that your way. Thank you, brother. All right, guys. Well, I will uh, let you go for now. It's, uh, it is good Friday actually. So I'm glad you guys, you know, so many people wandered out for this and you guys watching on the playback, please let me know if you have any questions. And as I said, I think I want to extend this to just open a door or two that both Jen and Don were describing like, Hmm, what if there's some more like this doesn't give us the whole picture, but it would be nice to have this or this. So I'm going to, I'm going to scan some research and see if indeed there is anything useful that, that might've come after this, that, that could be tagged on. So you guys have a great weekend and hopefully I will see you next week.